It's the latest episode of This Week in the CLE, where we talk and analyze the week's news in Greater Cleveland with the people who brought you that news, the reporting and editing team at Cleveland.com. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, and I'm joined by columnist Mark Namick, reporter Mary Kilpatrick, and in our first segment, reporter Pete Krauss. Before we start, anybody planning to see the Avengers movie this weekend? I have to take a group of teenagers to see it, but they're not letting me go in with them. Well, you're the Iron Man. Let's start with local taxes. The short version is that ours are high. Pete, what's the slightly longer version? Well, the slightly longer version is that um, uh, our taxes are higher uh, than a lot of our peer cities. Um, Greater Cleveland Partnership released a tax analysis uh, this week that shows Cleveland's tax burden is about 13% higher than the average of 10 peer cities, and those cities would include uh, St. Louis, Kansas City, Detroit, Buffalo, um, uh, and several others. Uh, And the upshot of this is that um, they think this is a problem, uh, and they don't know exactly how to fix it, and they're going to go to the community and see if maybe uh, a, a, a systemic kind of a solution is out there, which could ultimately result in in some kind of a merger or consolidation now that's way down the road but there's a lot of talk right now that our tax burden is high and and some form of government restructuring uh could serve this region very well so right off the bat you hear greater cleveland partnership thinks taxes are too high um, and want to lead this conversation, you can imagine there'd be some distrust. Why should the GCP be leading this? But as they describe this to us, they didn't really start this study with a bigger conversation in mind. They did this for purely in-house purposes. What were they trying to do? Well, that's right. They were doing. The, they were working on their strategic plan last year, and some of the, the leaders and some of the, the people that they uh, were consulting with um, kind of anecdotally talked about what they felt was a, a, a increasing tax burden. But it, w- it was all anecdotal. They didn't know for sure. They wanted details. So they hired Ernst & Young to do a detailed analysis of the, of the tax scene, the tax climate here in, in uh, Cuyahoga County, and, and uh, without any preconceived uh, idea of where they wanted it to go. Uh, I'm told it was a very objective analysis that was done. And the results actually showed uh, that that the climate for business taxes in Cuyahoga County is actually quite favorable, um, just a little bit below the average in terms of tax burden. You know, we've been talking for years about how screwed up the structure is of Cuyahoga County with all of the municipalities and all the duplication of services. And there often there, there has been very little appetite in the past for changing that. Um, th- this tax study opens a conversation. Pete's working on a project that'll that'll go into what St. Louis is doing to overcome some of those same challenges. But what's it going to take to have a real discussion about about genuine change in this county? One of the first things that has to be done is we clean up our county government because right now uh, that's an example of this change that voters supported several years ago, but. I can see you easily losing faith in it because we've been reporting on, and we'll talk more about this in a moment on the podcast, the problems they're facing. So I believe the public would be skeptical um, of trying to go forward into any kind of reduction or more centralized government when we're seeing our county government struggle. Now, we know where the resistance is going to come from. It's been the same thing. We have municipalities and school districts and multiple layers of things going on out there no one wants to give up that because it, it is a hard sell to local voters i want my school district i want my police department i want my services they're mine and i'm paying for them it's going to take you know huge uh, effort by leaders to, to make mm-hmm. a change yeah but but here's the dilemma mark um well i i just mentioned how the survey showed that business taxes were quite favorable it's the state taxes and the local taxes in Cuyahoga County that are extremely high. And in the case of local taxes, property taxes and local income tax, it's nearly 40% higher than these peer cities. And and the fact is, is that it's only going to get higher. I mean, we've had a lot of recent increases, and there's a lot more that are that are uh, well, in, the in, 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 in the that's hopper. That's the sales pitch and, and, to support this, is right. that we're going to lower the taxes. But I've read the study, and, you know, they... 
the state taxes have been going down. We, you know, the, the legislature's been working on that right. for for quite a while, and, and that was rated pretty favorable. Where we we the taxpayers get hit is on the local and the multiple taxing agencies from you know Metro Parks, Greater Cleveland, you know, 105 region. taxing agencies covering our region. Taking a little piece, and what's interesting about the study when you when you look at them individually, it doesn't feel that bad, right? Who, sure, a few more pennies for the park system. But you, you have to always put it in the larger context. Well, everything is coming. That, that's what the, G, the GCP endorses taxes. And they said they've always looked at them in a vacuum, one at a time. And when you look at one tax, it's always like, yeah, why not? It's the, the mass. But, but we're kind of straying a little bit from the bigger point. And you've been looking at this. Cities that have done consolidation are outperforming us, right? I mean, you've well, looked at a bunch the, that the, have done this, and they're doing better than we are. Well, they are. I mean, and a lot of it is anecdotally. But here's some analysis that was that was uh, in this report by GCP: the two cities that had the lowest uh, overall tax burden in that study they did were Nashville and Indianapolis, two cities that that merged their governments long ago. Um, so that that's some evidence that that. Uh, a more centralized government structure, one that can better allocate resources, limit the amount of taxing that you have to do, is preferable to something uh, uh, that we have where, you know, we've got 57 uh, cities and villages within Cuyahoga County alone. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I'm working on uh, a lot of uh, uh, research into what's happening in St. Louis, where they're looking to uh, perhaps merge their city and their county and a lot of the uh, operations of their municipalities, and uh, the savings they they feel there is, is considerable. Yeah, that series will come out the second week of May. As yet, it's unnamed, uh, but but Pete has a wealth of content that we'll be putting together, and eventually we'll be having a conversation uh, at IdeaStream, sponsored by PNC as part of Cleveland Connects. Um, let's move on. Some pretty shocking news out of our international airport this week. The hacking of display boards for, for flights and baggage claim. The city's been pretty mum on this, so what do we know, Mary? So we've confirmed, right, that this is a hacking. Malware was somehow installed into the airport and the airport was hacked. But the city has been so quiet about this. They're not acknowledging what the problem is. The FBI told us that they're working on this problem to try to figure out what happened. The city won't even acknowledge that the FBI is on board. So they're taking a real head in the sand approach to this. You know, maybe they're not saying anything right now because it's an ongoing investigation and, you know, they don't want to put anything out there. But it's been reported. It's happening. People know about it. They should acknowledge it in some way. Well, I don't, I wonder. I mean, if you have hackers into the airport system, right? They're, they're in these systems that don't that aren't life and death, but there are systems in that airport that are life and death. You have the air traffic controllers and things like that. Um, is there a danger if they reveal information that, that the hackers could somehow use to expand um, where they've, they've caused the damage? All I know is this is a really big deal. Even if it didn't affect travel, even if it didn't really affect travelers, you know, itineraries, uh, it's a big deal that our airport got hacked. Uh, my parents flew out of that airport on Monday. I would be really concerned. Uh, and I think that, you know, they have to at least acknowledge it. It's been reported. It's out there. Just say we know about it and we're working on it. Well, if it happened in Cleveland, could it have happened in other airports around the same time? Do we know anything about that? I don't know. That hasn't been reported. Yeah. No, the, and the city has had a little bit of a history of being quiet about things that happen at the airport. We remember the the uh, salt issue from some years ago where the FAA fined them because they weren't properly clearing the runways. It was very hard to get information about that in the beginning. Um, but this is this is the kind of thing that, that scares a lot of people. I mean, it's... You know, if something goes wrong at the at the airport, it can result in in a lot of injury and death. So, looks uh, like that uh, that movie with Bruce Willis, right, where they took over control <laughs> of the air traffic uh, control tower and uh, yeah. mayhem die, ensued. Die Hard Part Fifty Four. No conversation on news these days seems complete without a new revelation from the Cuyahoga County Jail, and this week we have several. Mark, let's start with Corey Schaefer's story last night about one jail guard in particular. Yeah, this is a correction officer that's currently working at the jail, which, as we all know, is under a lot of scrutiny. 
and uh, she was fired from her previous job at the Cuyahoga County Juvenile Court um, Detention Center uh, for throwing urine on a teenage inmate. It really, we could dedicate a whole podcast to this topic and this story because it is is fascinating, uh, the history and that story. Um, But let's kind of jump to the punchline, which is what was the vetting here? And what, you know, did the county know about the back, you know, this in, the, in this individual's background, which at this point we're, we're, they're saying they really, they're gathering the records, trying to figure that out. But as I understand it, they're all in the same personnel system. So if you put in a social security exactly. number, it pops How did up. This right. go through at a time when jail guards at the county have been at the center of this uh, investigation by the FBI, by the U.S. Marshals Report for you know uh, allowing, contributing to in, inhumane conditions. Um, that's what's really stunning about it is that you'd have anybody with this uh, potentially troubling past in terms of their demeanor. And when you read the story, you understand that this was retribution because a teenager had thrown urine on this guard previously. Uh, this guard claims that it wasn't really urine, yet there are circumstances that suggest it was, and that uh, this person claimed they were having uh, PTSD following that incident, and that may have led to this. This, These are all red flags that should be looked at in personnel and weren't. But, you're, but the scarier thought is maybe they knew and they hired her anyway. And Right. Is Now, there are more questions. Is there... Is, are they having trouble getting people to work in that jail? That's also a significant issue. If you are settling for someone at least on the surface right now that has this on the resume, that wouldn't be my first pick. I imagine news like this could affect the big lawsuit pending against the jail. We had news about that too. Uh, what's up with that? Well, we've we've there was a lawsuit filed in December against you know naming all the officials in the county, but it's on behalf of inmates for inhumane conditions. Uh, What happened this week was an amendment to that federal lawsuit that basically uh, adds names, additional inmates, but makes the charge that things haven't changed yet, Um, that things are still mirroring what was found in that report. You know, there are too many inmates, uh, people aren't being paid attention. One of the charges were that people aren't taking concerns about mental health seriously enough you know obviously this comes at a time where just less than a week ago we heard from county executive armin butish you know who said that uh you know that we we, we're not there yet but we're making these these positive strides bottom line is the latest you know filing in this lawsuit says that it's uh the jail continues to be in this constant state of crisis that's a direct quote look it is amazing this thing has been a problem now for five months since they got their report four months you would think that they would get the best minds they have to fix it but clearly we keep seeing evidence they haven't the jail is the subject of a grand jury investigation as well that case began actually with corruption allegations in the county's it department the corruption cases resulted in several criminal charges including some against emily mcneely this week, prosecutors emptied their shotgun in that case, providing what is called a bill of particulars against McNeely. Pete, what's the upshot of what they filed? Well, they've basically filed uh, details about the, the evidence they say they have that Emily McNeely uh, committed a variety of crimes while uh, in her role as uh, IT general counsel with the county. And what's interesting is uh, it was Emily's attorney, Roger Sinnenberg, who uh, requested this bill of particulars, I think, uh, basically assuming that uh, maybe there wasn't the evidence wasn't there. Well, the county came back and provided a, a whole lot of evidence. Is, is it possible he was just trying to figure out what am I defending against? Yeah, like very, he was very, swinging at a yeah, marshmallow. Yeah, move. By yeah, defense attorneys right. to ask for it. Right, and 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 prosecutors drag it out. I guess I'm a little surprised that they came out with so much detail because they did. I mean, they talked about how, um, for instance, uh, they they. They disclosed a lot of the details of a lot of the emails that they uh, subpoenaed, uh, private emails between uh, conversations between Emily McNeely and uh, and her spouse, uh, uh, and Emily and uh, uh, people at Highland Software where her spouse works. I mean, you know, she's she's being accused of of basically uh, having a a unlawful interest in a public contract. That contract being between Highland Software and the county 
Her spouse works at, at Highland Software, um, and and these details uh, show how she was involved in negotiations between Highland and the county over work that Highland might do for the county. And what was also interesting, um, uh, back, I think it was the end of 2016, the county, um, uh, they uh, contracted with a company called Cyber for this ERP project, their big uh, computer um, project where they're 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 basically you're redoing everything, and the company Cyber uh, got a got a clean bill of health from Emily and others, and uh, but apparently Emily's father uh, was uh, charged with uh, accepting bribes from Cyber in Pennsylvania in Pennsylvania when he was chairman of the Turnpike Commission. Well, Emily never mentioned this right. to anybody, according to uh, the, the the prosecutors. And according to the prosecutors, the reason why she didn't do this is because she was ashamed of her father. She was ashamed of her past. She'd come to Cleveland, and she wanted to get away from it. And if she brought it up, she felt that this would be harmful to herself. And they're saying that's why she didn't do it. But the fact that she didn't do it, they say, uh, caused the county to enter a contract with a company that later uh, uh, messed up pretty badly and had and and. Uh, didn't really cost the county money, but cost them a lot of time and effort and, and uh, uh, wasted. So Roger's going to have a, a tough time on his hands. Those are some pretty specific charges. Let's wrap up the county discussion this week. And to wrap it up, we have nepotism. Armin Budish wants more. Mark, what's he thinking? <laughs> well, I guess the last thing you ever want to hear when you have a county official under fire is, hey, I want to make it easier to hire friends and family. But but specifically in this case, there is a captain in the sheriff, a sheriff's captain, who they want to make basically the interim director of the jail or the jail director. Um, but he has uh, his wife's cousin is a jail guard there. So they wanted to allow, the, the, they have to change the rules to allow this to happen for him to be over a department with a relative. The problem here, in my opinion, is, is the obvious one. Again, this change at the county jail requires a very strong separation of powers between the you know the, the guy in charge or guy or woman in charge of the jail and the staff so now that you have a you know a family member in that that really does raise the question of is that the best move well what's interesting about this is the same day we broke that story you had a column item about a city official who had been caught in the nepotism situation and and her son had been transferred repeatedly for getting into trouble and the commenters on that story instantly went wait wait didn't i just read that armin budish wants more nepotism and you know yeah you know it's yeah there's great irony here and and the timing uh, doesn't work well for the county and again you know maybe if you step back and you would say yeah it should should a, a wife's cousin be prohibited from you know, you know, having a job or hurt someone else from getting a job, but in the case of where we need this strong separation of powers in the jail between, you know, the, the head of the jail and the guards, because they're at the heart of all the reform, just doesn't make sense here. Yeah. It's not the right time to push for it, and uh, it's up to county council to push back. Well, it's, yeah. it's also coming at a time when the, the county has just basically redone its ethics uh, policy. I mean, it's got... It's got new requirements of employees. Uh, they're they're going to be creating a new video that they're going to show employees about you know how they have to comport themselves, and nepotism is a part of that. Yeah, I, and, and I'll be surprised if this county council uh, signs off on it. After a short break, we'll be talking politics with Seth Richardson, who spent last weekend in Iowa watching tiny groups of people react to presidential candidate Tim Ryan. This is This Week in the CLE. If you want to read what Ohio's decision makers read, subscribe to Capital Letter, your first read of the morning newsletter from Cleveland.com. It's packed with tightly written summaries of everything you need to be up to date on the state's political scene. Subscribe at Cleveland.com backslash newsletters. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with Mark Namick, Mary Kilpatrick, and in this segment, Cleveland.com politics writer Seth Richardson. Seth, who has roots in Iowa, spent last weekend there getting a read on the campaign of Tim Ryan, the Ohio congressman seeking the Democratic nomination for president. Seth, give us the broad strokes. So 
you know, you know, I did see some promising things for Tim Ryan, like the people who he did go and speak to. They were very uh, uh, polite, I guess is the way to put it, saying, oh, you know, he did, he says some great things, and um, yeah, you know, maybe he could, anybody's got a shot, but, uh, you know, for every, like, good sign that you saw, you saw, like, three or four bad signs, I mean... Of course, all the people that we talked to were very polite and said, yeah, that's great. The problem was, is that I don't know that, you know, you could count most of them on like two hands every event that you went to. So um, that was kind of the big takeaway that I saw. Also, the organization of his campaign was definitely a little scattershot. So um, the, the the nicest way to put it is he probably has a long way to go. Were you the only reporter there? No, other, uh, m- most of the time when you go to these things, local press will often show up because, you know, the candidates are going there and this is kind of their Super Bowl. Um, I think that uh, the Washington Post did end up showing up after a while, but um, at, at at least one event, there was almost as much as much press as there were uh, people attending. That's not a good thing, I should say. There were probably about six or seven press. I think only nine people showed up. So um, definitely some hollow rooms, to say the well, least. Well, wait, wait, so you 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 talk to him, right? And so what does he say? I mean, you're not going to win. Uh, the nomination by talking to nine people at a time, right? So what what is his what does he say about it? He's got to be disappointed. Yeah, he is, but uh, well, disappointed might not be the right word. Um, you know, no one wants to speak to an empty room. His plan of attack right now is he is hoping to have kind of that one big moment that sort of takes him out and you know uh, makes him stand apart from the other candidates. Basically, some viral Twitter moment or a video where he's you know making a rousing point and then all of a sudden that builds onto something um it gets in front of a lot of eyes and that's how he gets the donors and you know he said as much he said yeah i need a moment or two or three it's just hard to see him getting that moment when you know a lot of the times when you do have these candidates who kind of you know blow up it's because their crowds are growing more people are going and then something comes out and they're like oh look uh, look what this candidate did and then a million people see it on twitter but the odds of that happening are so unlikely that it seems kind of uh, a quixotic um, way to run a presidential campaign. Do you think? Uh, do you think he's considered any sort of um, yoga component to that big moment? I know he's a big fan of yoga. Maybe a, a tutorial, yoga tutorial. I could see that going viral. I will say that if he has a base of support, or if he is going to have a base of support in Iowa. It's going to be in Fairfield, which is actually nearby where I was born. The reason that he could have a base of support in Iowa or in Fairfield, Iowa, is because it is the home to Maharishi University School of Management, which teaches transcendental meditation, which is like right up his alley. Um, but there is another former presidential candidate that had a link to that university. Which one? Dennis Kucinich. Oh, well, yeah, there you go. Um, but was he popular in Fairfield? I bet he was. Um, th- that was easily the group. It was a house party. And um, in Iowa, basically, those are kind of king. You go to these house parties, about 50 people show up, and you know they go see all the candidates. So that house party there was actually pretty well attended. It was about 30 people on a Saturday. It's not great by any stretch of the imagination, but it's hard to see him taking that sort of Youngstown, New Age hippie thing beyond the borders of Fairfield. But, but follow the, the thread of what Mary said. I mean, we're, we're in this horribly divisive, polarized age. Is there a path for him to play off of mindfulness and 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 you know getting peace and I mean you you said he's going to need his moment. Where's it going to come from? His message isn't all that different from anybody else's, is it? Well, it's interesting you brought that up. Um, I mean, personally, I don't see where the moment comes from, right? Because a lot of these candidates that you have in right now got there because of a moment right you look at Beto he was all over Twitter last year and people were loving him for his kind of blunt talk and whatnot you look at uh, Pete Buttigieg he um, arguably one of his bigger moments is when a Danish reporter came out of nowhere and he just started speaking Danish to him it's like what what sort of viral moment does Tim Ryan have packed away when um, yeah he does have basically the same message as everybody else I talked to one voter in Des Moines, it was a younger voter, at uh, this kind of youth campaign event, and um, the way that she kind of put it is, well, I mean, he's sort of just another generic white guy Democrat, and if I were going to vote for a generic white guy Democrat, why wouldn't I just vote for Beto? Besides the size of the crowd, what was the difference in the way he was received from how Sherrod Brown was received when you traveled with him? 
So people there really liked Sherrod. They, I even talked to someone there who said, oh, God, I wish Sherrod had gotten in. Like, he would be my number one, no question. They said that at the Ryan. Said that at the Ryan. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it was actually the, the uh, Des Moines thing, which was all the candidates. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Sherrod just got profile, and he was kind of the, uh, the darling of national media for a while. He was getting on... Um, you know, cable news channels and the Sunday shows and whatnot. So he had just a much bigger platform on which to go, uh, not to mention he had a donor base so he could afford to kind of go around and do this, in, uh, especially in the early stages when you didn't have all the candidates in and people were still trying to figure out the field. Now that you have um, basically your upper tranche of candidates are already in there, right? I mean, with Biden getting in today, it's hard to think of a you know, another big name who might pop out of nowhere. So you've got this, basically you've got a congressman from Youngstown who's coming in that isn't going to generate much buzz and it's not early enough for him to generate much buzz. Well, and if you put together a balance sheet of upside and downside, it would be pretty weighted on his downsides. No money, no unique message, uh, you know, is unknown, yeah. um, is not drawing crowds. What's his upside? I, I'm kind of hard-pressed to find one myself, <laughs> frankly. I mean, you know, it's it, you hate to ever say uh, a no to a guy or anything like that, but when you go and you follow him around and it's, you know, crowds of 10 and 12 and people don't know anything about this. I mean, he was getting questions about uh, right to work and labor unions, and it's like, that's his bread and butter. You know, he's been running on that for... Ever. You know, however many terms he's been in Congress, and if people don't know that about him, that doesn't strike me as something that's great. You know, people people at least had an idea of who Sherrod Brown was when they went there. They knew, oh yeah, he's the he's the pro union guy, he's the blue collar working class guy. They don't really know who Tim Ryan is, except for he's the guy who challenged Nancy Pelosi. That's so, his claim to fame. So Seth, I'm going to be a little cynical here, but is this Tim Ryan trying to get his name out there and trying to get more you know recognition on the national? Um, scale is that why he's running? I I don't want to necessarily you know say that it's one way or another like what Tim Ryan is trying to do, but I mean when it, it if it's hard to see a way that this guy is going to win, right? Um, just you know he's not even the only just like kind of you know low level congressman who's in the race, right? You got Eric Swalwell and you got Seth Moulton coming in. So you do have to ask yourself, is he trying to position him, himself as like a vice presidential candidate who, you know, has shown that he can play in the Midwest and that's how he sort of raises his profile or is he gearing up for something else? You know, there's been speculation that um, he's doing this as an exercise to uh, boost his profile to run for something in Ohio. But he doesn't need that because Democrats have been begging him to run for stuff for years and he hasn't done it yet. So I, I don't know, frankly. I, I don't have the answer. But, yeah, it does kind of seem like that might be the case. All right. So Donald Trump is counting on the economy to help him beat back challengers like Ryan. And the latest Ohio jobs report might just help. For the third time in three months, Ohio has posted a jobs number higher than at any point since 2001. Seth, what does it mean for Ohio politics? Well, when you're talking, your main talking point is the economy, and you do have a jobs report that does look this good, it certainly bodes well for, you know, any kind of, at least the party in power, right? I mean, it's hard to argue against, hey, uh, we were posting the best job numbers since 2001, right? Um, and not only that, but done it twice this year. Uh, so, I mean, I think it bodes well, uh, assuming that there's no downturn in the economy. Yeah, there's still a long way to go yeah. before that. And in a few in in 2020, if it started to drop, that yeah, could it's, a, it's a question of if if this is the uh, the peak of the jobs growth or if this is uh, this is still on the way up, right? If it's still on the way up, then it's fantastic news. They have to be elated by it. But if this is kind of the top, well, then you know, what comes after the top, right? Yeah. Parents of high schoolers feel helpless to stop the vaping epidemic all around them. Electronic cigarettes are ubiquitous in Northeast Ohio high schools, despite fears in the medical community that kids who vape will become nicotine addicts for life. Mary, what are leaders in one of Cleveland suburbs doing to fight this? So Strongsville just passed an ordinance this week banning e-cigarettes, so jewels, vaporizers, anything. They, they have a lot of different names uh, for anybody under 18. And this has a lot of medical research behind it. The CDC says, you know, the majority of these e-cigarettes contain nicotine. Nicotine can affect brain development. Uh, if you have a teenager, if you've spoken to a teenager in the last three years, you know that these jewels, these vapes are incredibly popular. Uh, my aunt is a high school teacher. She was a high school teacher in the 70s. She still substitutes today. And I said that the smoke in the bathroom has been replaced by 
these vapors and you walk into the bathroom and you smell cherry and vanilla and chocolate these these vape smells so it's it's a huge problem but let's face it if one suburb outlaws the sale of it to people under 18 what effect does it actually have i think it sets a precedent i think it's an interesting idea i think that maybe other communities might follow in their lead but practically if a kid from Strongsville can't buy an e-cigarette in Strongsville, they could go over to North Royalton or, you know, any other community, Brecksville around there and, and probably pick them up. So it might take a statewide kind of effort. Yeah, I think so. It. I think so. Uh, Seth, I don't know if you have anything to say. Seth. I mean, kids shouldn't <laughs> vape. Like it's not that hard. Um, you know, I think that, so like, I mean, full disclosure, like, yeah, I, I use, uh, you know, electronic cigarettes. I used it to quit smoking. It worked pretty well for me, frankly. Um, but the trend that you're starting to see now is that uh, kids will start using these and then start smoking later on, which is the complete opposite effect of what you want. Not to mention you don't want kids using nicotine anyway, right? Um, you know, I think there's been kind of, you know, it's been really an unregulated kind of market because it's not, it doesn't fit squarely into anything. So I think what you'll probably start seeing is um, some cracking down on a lot of like the flavors, like you said, because that's kind of the appeal. A lot right? of the the packaging too, they're small, they look like flash drives, mm. they're, you know, they don't say directly that they're marketed towards teenagers, but if you look at one, you know, they could potentially be marketing towards teenagers it's joe camel yeah. yeah it's similar to that well speaking of controversial vapors the effort by first energy to have taxpayers bail out its nuclear plants has kept reporters spinning more than the electrons in an atom and despite repeated defeats the utility seems finally to have a path to success seth what's the latest on first energy's push to get us to pay for their old plants yeah, I don't think this is anything that, uh, you know, people paying attention didn't expect to come up, just given where the money was flowing in 2018. And, you know, everybody knows Larry Householder is a friend of First Energy, right? That's why they backed all of his candidates. And, um, you know, the thing that strikes me is I'm curious, you know, the environmental people. But what's, the, what's the latest? Who's the latest one to line up behind it? Oh, well, yeah, Mike DeWine, um, kind of soft, got behind some kind of thing. Um, but that that's the big curiosity that I have with this is, you know, because it is a bailout. There's like no other way to describe it except right. a bailout. And, you know, you look at kind of the first three big things that might come on Mike DeWine's plate, and it's uh, basically a tax increase, outlawing abortion, and then a nuclear bailout. Um, it'd be one thing, I guess, if every <laughs> customer in the state had first energy, but not every, not even everybody in Cleveland has first energy, right? So um, I there's going to be some significant changes. Just the votes probably aren't quite there yet. But up until this year, every step first energy took was defeated, and they were they were ready or said they were ready to shut them down. But it seems pretty clear those nuclear plants are going to be around, and we're the first energy customers are going to pay for them. Well, and it's it's going to lead to this weird coalition of people where you're going to have the uh, hardcore environmentalists teaming up with Ryan Smith, which I don't know if the planets are aligning one way or another. But um, yeah, I mean, it, I think you know, Dewine saying at least kind of softly that, "Hey, I support doing something right." Uh, really points to yeah something's probably gonna happen that that's just the truth of the matter um does it look exactly like what you know larry householder and first energy want it to look like or does that mean there's like expanded subsidies for wind and solar and other kind of forms of energy is kind of a buy-in for democrats that's those are the games that are going to be played yeah we'll see the position of Ohio Secretary of State doesn't generate a lot of news in the off years, which means that people in that position have to work pretty hard to get attention. Frank LaRose took office in January, and he announced some steps this week that could dramatically change some of the ways that we vote. Mark, what's the uh, what's he proposing? Uh, the new Secretary of State wants to, the big one is to make uh, you know, auto, make it e easy to, to register to vote online. I mean, this is something that he, as a candidate, uh, talked about um, he was running against a Democrat, Kathleen Clyde, who was strongly pushing for making voting easier, registration easier. Um, the one other element of this that's that's significant uh, is this thing called an opt-out option, which basically means when you file your taxes, you would have to 
opt out if you didn't want to automatically be registered. Um, they also want to see if they can get the state computers to talk to each other for a change so that when you update one address, that that address can get over to the Board of Elections so that you're not getting uh, cards threatening to cut off your, your voter registration. And that and that's a significant difference than the last eight years under John Husted, who's now Lieutenant Governor. I mean, his, his he had led the charge to purge voter rolls if people didn't vote in in certain number of years well LaRose is, is still saying he's going to send out those cards but his hope or his argument is if, if if you support me in this idea to make our computers talk to each other help us update addresses we won't ultimately need this right the because they'll know that people are still at the address they're registered at which would be a pretty big step forward it's yeah. it kind of runs counter to what we've seen and, the and last we saw years. that LaRose in the campaign and again I think he was you know really pushed by Kathleen Clyde on this you know, they really were dueling to see who could be more open to voter registration, um, which really is a, a little bit of a difference from how Secretary of State candidates that have been Republican have run in the past. Um, so LaRose is, is staking his claim on it. And it, uh, you know, this stuff really doesn't matter until the big election cycles because that's when all the funny business starts. You know, they want to, you know, there's still lots to come on uh, the voting machines. We're, you know, we're starting to see that nationally. Um, you know, again, Ohio uses a, a mix of machines. I think uh, we've we, our, our stats will prove that the the bubble sheets, you know, the SAT sheets are are the safest because you get a paper right. uh, receipt as well as an electronic version. Um, right now, he's dealing with voter registration, which is is the big issue. And we're uh, we're not that far off from the big election cycle. After a break, we'll be talking with Northeast Ohio's preeminent data journalist, Rich Exner, about what's going on with our population loss and how Ohio could gain from a Supreme Court decision on the census. If you're enjoying our This Week in the CLE podcast, you'll want to subscribe to Cleveland.com's free morning newsletter, The Wake Up. It's waiting for you in your email when you arise each morning to bring you news from overnight in the previous day. If you read The Wake Up each morning, you're up to date. Sus subscribe at cleveland.com slash newsletters. In this segment of This Week in the CLE, we're joined by data journalist Rich Exner, who spent a good part of the week looking at population trends. A year ago, Rich, John Pinney alarmed the region with a city club speech about the region's economic woes that focused a good bit on population decline. And here we are a year later, we've lost 4,500 more people in Cuyahoga County, which was the ninth worst in the nation. Where are they going? Shuffle continues. It's uh, Cuyahoga County losing population, but the region as a whole Again, essentially flat since two th or since 1980, uh, people moving around within the region. But Cuyahoga County keeps dropping. Cuyahoga County keeps dropping uh, another uh, two or three thousand, I think, in the last year. How did um, how did uh, Columbus and Franklin County do? Uh, Franklin County picked up. Now, keep in mind, Franklin has a lot more room, so when people shuffle, they're not necessarily leaving the county. So that comes into play. But even the Central Ohio region is getting larger population-wise. Well. Uh, Northeast Ohio in some years is shrinking, if not in better years, staying steady. Is it that is it the people are moving out? Is it that they're dying? Is it that nobody's moving in to replace the people who die? What What is causing the drop? Uh, all of the above. Uh, when you look at moves to people just shuffling around, whether it's to other places in Ohio or the United States, Cuyahoga County is losing, as is every large urban county in Ohio and surrounding areas. But what's hurting Cuyahoga County is, well, that happens. Um, they're not picking up enough numbers to new births. I think that's a product of... Uh, of the age of the population in Cuyahoga County, uh, we just have barely more births than deaths where, where Franklin County, which where Columbus is, is picking up uh, thousands of people that way. Are they generally a lot younger down there? G generally younger population, so they're that uh, childbearing age more so than, than people in an older county like Cuyahoga. When you look across the nation and you see places that are growing their population, what are they doing that we're not doing? Uh, getting good weather. I think <laughs> you, you see a lot of that is in uh, in Arizona, across the south, uh, west coast. Um, the other thing is that a lot of those places that are growing are, well, Cuyahoga County picks up people from international migration, not to the numbers that they do in some other large areas. In fact, Cuyahoga, or the state of Ohio um, just picked up barely enough people through international migration to offset those that are moving elsewhere in the United States. 
But but uh, immigration is not really doing much for Cleveland and Cuyahoga County. If it, it would be a lot worse if it wasn't for immigration. And and um, they have picked up a few thousand people each of the last several years that way. But uh, you think uh, those before we were here and Cuyahoga County was growing leaps and bounds in the early part of the 1900s, that was immigration doing it. Where is the uh, immigration that we're getting coming from? Uh a little bit of both, um, not not as much in like you hear about in Texas or in Florida and uh, California from the um, Latin America or Spanish speaking areas. Uh, we we get more the immigration we're picking up is from the Middle East and in some Asia. Our Asian numbers are still a small group, but it's getting larger, and they tend to be high incomes when they get here. And uh, last two or three years ago, Cuyahoga County was picking up a lot through uh, refugees and so forth too. Do the cities that seem to grow the most with immigration have programs that help them do that? I mean, is part of Cleveland's issue is that we're not doing enough, or does that not matter? Philadelphia is a place that's made a real focus on that, and they're growing faster. Now, is that because of the programs, or is that because they have jobs and a network of people? Um, thinking back in the early 1900s, from what I heard, a lot of people go where their relatives were. So it's probably a little bit of uh, a lot of things at work, but but certainly programs could help and make people comfortable when they get here, too. And that's what uh, some of the programs here in Cleveland try to do. So with the census coming up, um, there's a big debate about uh, asking a specific question on the census form that many people believe would discourage immigrants from answering or participating. Uh, You did a story this week that showed that actually, even though it might not fit the philosophy of many people who live here, this could actually be beneficial for Ohio. How does that work? Well, uh, the fear is that by just simply asking the question that people won't respond and it could cause an undercount. Um, in California and some of the states are concerned because they have a lot of non-citizens or even amongst group of people that are citizens that their concern is that they're not going to answer. But when I took a look and uh, right now, if, if you were doing the new new congressional seats, Ohio would be exactly the same at 16. Projecting forward, Ohio loses a seat. So what I just did a little bit ago in the rough numbers, take out every non-citizen that's estimated to live in the United States, California would lose three seats. Ohio still loses a seat. We lose a seat. No you lose right. a seat anyway. Now, the question is, there, there is some speculation that even legal citizens will be scared away from answering the question, too. So... You know, it's kind of dicey where you go on this, but if you take all the citizens out, it appears that Ohio would still be losing a seat or non citizens. The issue, as we know, came before the Supreme Court this week, and, you know, the reports from, from reporters there uh, interpreted the uh, questions from the justices as, as being skeptical of, of why we shouldn't ask the question, um, which surprised some observers, but they seem to be skeptical of of the, the you know these these groups you know uh, uh, arguments against you know the government doing it although it did in reading the stories it did it was hard to discern what's the constitutional issue that opposes it i mean there there were census forms in in previous decades where the citizenship question was asked and i but I, not not always not to everyone and it was usually a, a trigger question uh, or it followed if you answered one way then then you got that question. This is different in that everybody will get this question. And they, they are concerned that even though Puerto Rico is an American territory, people still uh, are hesitant to, to respond on that citizenship question. Yeah, well, and the research was pretty clear that it will it will have a, a percentage decrease in the, participation. Yeah, the Supreme Court case is about does the government have the right to ask the question. Right. right. And, and uh, whether they're fulfilling their constitutional responsibility to count everyone does it stand in the way of getting the best accurate count possible census will still try to estimate how many people live in places even if they don't return the form but it makes it more expensive and and introduces more possibility of error you said that that there's a thought that it would discourage actual citizens from participating what would what would be the fear there that that's what uh, some of the advocates of not having this question are saying well because you might be a citizen but you have non-citizens in your household so you don't answer anything because you don't want someone to take a look there's just one census form per household so you're filling it out for everybody when you do it so what what do you think uh what do you think that means for ohio in the long run nothing ohio only has about estimated 250,000 non-citizens so in that number it could mean nothing it could mean a lot for a place like california uh, not only in losing congressional seats, but then when they go and draw the lines, remember they use these same numbers to draw the lines. Um, so it could end up being 
you know, it really changed the, the boundaries that you have to draw to come up with the right number of people. This is one of those deals that even though they're counted um, and they figure into the lines, they can't vote. So you don't, when you're drawing the lines, you don't take out the people that can't vote. The lines are drawn based on the size of the population, even though a smaller population is eligible to vote. Right. And they don't, as of now, they don't, they don't count for the purpose of congressional districts how many voting age people are are there it's how many people are there it's just total people it's like the way they do the prisons in ohio for the state districts it, it seems pretty clear that that the census is supposed to count everyone and i haven't even seen that disputed seriously amongst people on this question what what apparently is a more of a possibility is if congress would ever want to change what you use for the number to draw your districts which is different than counting people for the census and you know how you, how you draw those districts and apparently new york several years ago did have a citizenship requirement on drawing their districts within the state and actually paid the census bureau to ask that question on their forms well rich has been the census expert in cleveland going back probably 16 years and uh, look uh, as we get closer and closer to 2020 for his continued reporting on um, on controversies and issues that arise with it in a moment, we'll hear from pop culture expert Troy Smith on the Avengers movie. Troy saw a preview earlier this week. You've been reading the writers at Cleveland.com for years, and now you can engage with them on a more personal level through Project Text. For a small monthly fee, you can receive text messages from the likes of Mary Kay Cabot, Paul Hoynes, Mark Namick, Troy Smith, and many others in our newsroom. Project Text gives you a cost-effective way to support the journalism upon which you rely. Check it out at cleveland.com slash project text. It's This Week in the CLE, a conversation about the week's news by the people who bring you that news. I'm cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, and I'm here with columnist Mark Namick, reporter Mary Kilpatrick, and in this closing segment, Troy Smith, who spent more than three hours in a crowded movie theater Tuesday so that he could tell you today whether the final Avengers movie is worth seeing. Don't worry, there are no spoilers here. Troy, what do you say? Just three hours and 58 seconds, <laughs> to be exact. Um biggest movie of the year probably will set the record for the highest box office opening uh opening weekend ever um the excitement's real and the hype's real it's a good movie you like it you recommend it yeah i think it's i mean three hours is a long time for any movie you know and i was telling mark earlier i think it's like 10 minutes shorter than gandhi to give you (laughs) to give you an idea but it moves a lot faster than gandhi as most things probably do and you told me there's no like uh little extras yeah there's no post credits as soon as that credits start yeah there's like a tribute to all the characters after these 22 films uh but there is not a you don't have to stay for a tease for spider-man homecoming or something like that afterwards it just ends so there were 20 there were 22 this is the 22nd film in marvel's cinematic universe so i don't know how many hours that is but but if i didn't see any of those and i wanted to feel like i knew what was going on in this one what are the five that i should see the five movies you should see. Wow, I would say I would see both Thors. We we'll see Captain America: Civil War. Got to see Infinity War, the one before this, obviously. Then um, just throw in another one. Iron Guardians Man. of the Galaxy. <laughs> First Avengers. Yeah, you could see. Yeah, and they do reference. I don't. No spoilers. They do reference the other movies uh, pretty well. So yeah, it's a big summing up. It is. I think for me, if I was reviewing it, I would say there's plot holes. There's some things that you might roll your eyes at. But overall, it's such a great conclusion of all these films when, you know, a lot of a lot of franchises can't even close out a trilogy in proper fashion. Is this the best of the Marvel Universe movies? No, I I think that's still Black Panther for me. You know, I'd rank that number one and then Guardians uh, of the Galaxy and the, the first Iron Man, which began all this in 2008 those would be my top choices the um the, the it's three hours it can't be three hours of non-stop action right <laughs> there, there must you be would, i'd say is there a point at which you can go to the bathroom i picked four points anything? in this film where you can run pee come back <laughs> and not have missed too much basically when ant-man comes on screen go run it use the bathroom <laughs> And there's a couple Thor scenes where you could get away with ducking out. Is there any poignancy? Is there any, you know, kind of big goodbye? Or is it just action? action there's action, big action. goodbyes. There's moments. I cried. Uh, Joey Marona, my colleague, said he cried six times. I don't know what those other five times were. <laughs> He's a little more emotional than me. 
But there is there's emotion. I think I have a cousin who's ten years older than me, a huge Star Wars fan. He loves these movies. He says this is this generation's Star Wars. Could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what's what's the connection there? What is is it about these movies that people identify with and and love? Because I you know <laughs> I know people who go like like Joey like religiously. So I think that it's you know superheroes are kind of larger than life figures in movies have always been the thing even you know for some of us it was reading comic books as kids and you're seeing these characters come to life i think for the younger people it's seeing these larger life characters that have this human quality and i think that's what's made this work more than say the dc movies that have failed lately with batman and superman but also what marvel's done so brilliantly is, in, is incorporating all demographics, you know, shape, size, men, women. If you look at Captain Marvel to Black Panther, they really have something for everyone in the collection of movies that they've done. Which characters would you recommend people key on if they're watching the movie? Uh, you know, it, they've narrowed this down to the core uh, Avengers. So you got Captain America, Iron Man, Hulk, Thor, uh, Black Widow, and uh, Hawkeye. So they've really narrowed it down to to those people in this movie. The way that Infinity War ended, that was what was going to be. <laughs> Mark, I don't know if Mark, did you see Infinity War? Or did you just do a drop off of your your daughter, like go, I'll come no, get she's you. She's not letting me go in. Okay, I'm taking her. But I, I will tell you this. So my daughter is a teenager. Uh, we had themed birthday parties for every year. One of those was a superhero party, which I thought was was great. Everybody came. Being a different character, had a cape on as a kid. Um, I've been in the car with the teenagers, and they talk about this culture and of, of the of this world of Avengers with the same intensity of, of people trying to solve the Middle East peace crisis. <laughs> I do hope my daughter will give that the same attention someday. But it's it's real. People have been talking about it. She's getting to see it at a preview uh, Thursday evening. And you really won't go in and see it. No, I don't have a ticket. <laughs> I'm, I'm the Uber driver. The tickets are hard to come by for, for the opening. For the first weekend. Yeah, yeah it's going to be a huge movie. And the reason we're talking about it here especially is there's a huge Cleveland tie-in with the Avengers franchise. The first Avengers movie was filmed here. Captain America Winter Soldier was filmed here, directed by the Russo brothers, who then directed Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame. The Russo brothers being the... Cleveland natives, yeah. The children of of a Judge Russo. You're going to see it, Mary? Oh, no. (laughs) Not. No, I have no interest in it. I'm glad other people... um, It sparks joy for other people, but, uh, you know, not, not my cup of tea. All right, that'll do it for this episode of This Week in the CLE. Thanks to Mark Namick, Mary Kilpatrick, Troy Smith, Rich Exner, Seth Richardson, and Pete Krause for the conversation. I'm Chris Quinn, and we'll be back every Thursday night with discussion and analysis of what's going on in Northeast Ohio.